Hi, and welcome back to the Beauty of Conflict podcast. We know you're busy, and we want to make it easy for you to understand how conflict may likely be showing up in a way that's impacting your team negatively. We've recorded the first three chapters of our book for you to listen to for free. Get your free audio sample at thriveinc.com forward slash free sample. That's T-H-R-I-V-E-I-N-C dot com forward slash F-R-E-E-S-A-M-P-L-E. I'm Chris Marie Campbell. And I'm Susan Clark. And today we have a special guest, Lori Wallace, who is the founder and CEO of Career Ecology, a hub spot for work-life empowerment. With 20 years of executive recruiting experience, Lori began the work post 9-11 in order to transform headhunting into human connection. I love that. Yes. (laughs) As a graduate from UCLA in psychology and a certified trainer in nurtured heart approach plus wild soul coaching, Lori unlocks diversity and cooperation so all may reap the rewards of deep integration the way nature intended. The challenging world of employment is Lori's landscape for healing. She empowers authentic relating via advanced technologies, including feng shui resume, mindful interviewing, and dynamic networking, as well as Way of the Monarch, a guided journey into empowered self. This is the age of empowerment. Welcome, Lori. We're excited to have you. Oh, thank you. I'm so glad to be here. And just as a moment of ritual of just gratitude, I just want to say how grateful I am too that both of you are so resilient. If you have such big, open, resilient hearts, and when I've listened to your stories of resilience and empowerment and that you chose to go ahead and bring that message about conflict, you don't diffuse it, use it, you know, I I was like, oh, yeah. I mean, I tell my beloved husband of 33 years that this is because he's always like, don't be mad at me. And I said, this is juicy. (laughs) Yes, you got it. So, so brave of you. And I'm just so glad that you're both here. Thank you. Oh, you're very gracious. We so appreciate that. (laughs) Well, I mean, you mentioned a little bit about our journeys on how we got here, but we always like to start with our guests and have them talk about how did you get into the work you're doing? And I think that is sort of this idea of being a work-life doula and (laughs) your shift that made that something that was so critical to your life. life. Yeah. So true. You know, when I'm working with people as this work-life doula, and I love the term doula because it's a person that supports transitions. And, you know, we typically hear it associated with birth doulas and death doulas. But Mm -hmm. boy, is there a lot of transition going on during our living times? And, (laughs) you know... (laughs) It's true. It's like true. we've got these two acres, yes. but what about all the middle ones? Completely. Oh, you know, that so reminds me. Just last week, I was doing some work with a wonderful group of people. And we did this experience where we were lifting a woman up and supporting her. And afterwards, one of the women in the circle was, you know, we do this at funerals. We lift people up and we carry them why don't we do that in life more often? And it was such a wonderful, like I hadn't even, it just sort of came naturally to do it, but I hadn't thought of it. But oh my gosh. Well, sort of the same idea you're talking about. These things we realize at birth and death, but sometimes forget would be helpful. New life. Oh my gracious. That's such a beautiful idea. And it's true when we think about it, because I think we're experiencing through our lives all of these mini and macro experiences of abandonment. Mm. And the most, and this is going to practice, I, I get truth tears, so don't mind me. I know some of you can't see this. This is audio. But the worst kind of abandonment is self-abandonment. Oh, yes. Yeah. And aren't we taught from the day we're born 
especially if we are taught to be compliant, mm-hmm. that is a major, major place of self-abandonment. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And when you listen to your stories and Susan, what happened to you and that day in that hospital room and how you cleared yourself of cancer when you saw conflict worked out and no longer needed to somewhat abandon even that idea, that concept that there's something that needs to be said. Just really these moments of, I can show up here for myself. My issues with my health and what really brought me to understand about conflict and the importance of it is, you know, I was raised also to be compliant. And my situation was, is that I have a very happy father who kind of had narcissistic tendencies and he was a happy narcissist. So very different than having a kernel of energy. And so I was raised that this was actually good and that if I didn't feel good about it, then what was wrong with me? Because I wasn't happy when all this happiness was here. So it was a lot of confusion. And my mom really brought forward compliance and enablement. So I'm naturally kind of a living hummingbird. So, you know, I buzz around loving people like you two, you know, wanting to bring joy, love people and nature and all of that. And was compliant and was causing problems for myself because autoimmune came into my body. And I didn't realize until I had a baby when I was 36. So I got married when I was 24 to my soulmate and the conflict in our marriage began. Basically, I would say my husband had the ring, like the engagement ring in his pocket, and he started fighting with me. Um, because because he was so afraid I was going to say no. And so the conflict began there and I started to realize this was going to be kind of our thing. And we had 10 years of conflict before we finally brought a baby into the world, which was actually through IVF because nothing was easy. And so here I am and I'm 36. And this was my moment that I'm eight months pregnant. I'm in San Francisco, living in the Berkeley area. Phone rings six o'clock in the morning. I answer the phone. And my sister-in-law, just full of just fear and angst, tells me to turn on the television and there is a tower in New York City on fire. Mm -hmm. And I'm thinking, this is a horrible accident. We all did at first. And then as we're watching this unfold, we see the second plane. And my pregnant body became a possum and it wanted to push out my baby and it wanted me to run for safety. And I went into hard labor. My husband took me into the emergency room. And let me tell you, there were a lot of women in early labor on that day. Oh, my gosh. Wow. Yes. A lot of fear. Fear response. Like, wow. That's it. And I don't know if you know this about possums, but when they are threatened, they will push out something like 50 babies. That's what they do. (laughs) They sort of populate the world with possums. They just... And as mothers, they run away from the babies to save themselves because they know they can have 50 babies again, like in a month. But it was sort of like that is like, get this baby out so you can hold this baby and like you can run or you can survive, you know, managed to keep my baby in, but I was forever changed. And that day I realized, okay, I need to practice radical kindness. Something's going on in the world here, but also something's going on with me because my autoimmune kicked into high gear. When you have a baby, your your immune system actually is depressed for a while. At the end, if you have issues, then it goes into overpower, you know, kind of overwhelms you with, I had rashes, I had to cover my face. I think I looked like some serious, serious kind of infectious disease all over my face. My eyes were swollen shut. I lost 10 pounds. I had fibromyalgia. I was dying in an instant and with this brand new baby. And I realized I need help. And I started to go to doctors and they said, girl, just take this pill. You know, you're old. Oh, you're a geriatric mother. <laughs> geriatric mother at 36. 36. And mm-hmm. I realized I was going to die. And so I Googled 
my symptoms for the very first time in my life and started to face this conflict, started to face that I had something to say. I knew about my own health. I needed to protect this baby. I had many people that are telling me that I was crazy with what I was feeling and what was going on. And I lifted up out of the abyss, out of the ashes, really, with the towers and said, if I want to be a loving mom, if I want to be a fully aware, awakened woman, I had better open my mouth and I had better listen to my heart. I had better show up here and now. And that was the beginning of coming out of my compliant shell. And it's been messy. And I love that <laughs> something that you guys said, get in that smack and the mess of it. And mm-hmm. it's messy and gorgeous and alive. And I love it. Oh, my God. <laughs> oh, what wow. a story, Lori. Yeah. I mean, that's very profound. Yeah. And so, I mean, I can so get the medical model. There are things that the medical model does well. I do not want to. But, and actually recognizing and listening and actually acknowledging that they don't know everything is really difficult. That that world. Yeah. And even honoring you coming to the place of honoring your own knowing, because we all have, and I think women, because of the birth process, have have to have so much more connection inside. Yeah. I appreciate that you got to that place. And kind of wanted to stop the repression of your own mm. genuine, authentic self, Yeah, which is Oh that my gosh. I'm so glad you said that because you just remind, so this is what, if we arc forward and there's stuff in the middle, but we arc forward because we're talking about conflict here. When I was a brand new mother as a compliant, enabling woman, I had all this love. It was so much love for my son, but he was in danger in a way because I was somewhat disconnected. I wasn't actually going to show up. I wasn't going to maybe put up a boundary. I wasn't going to you know, protect because I was just going to somewhat flow with all the other energies. So it was. it's almost like you have your real self is outside your body and they're not together and they're not communicating. And, you know, for example, like when I came home with my son and he had been circumcised, the painkiller wore off. OK, so I walk into the house with my brand new baby and he is screaming a primal cry. And you know, it's you're like, whoa. And what's my first thought? Because I'm so disconnected. I'm like, the baby likes the nurses better than me. And (laughs) I'm putting these ridiculous adult ideas that my child is screaming because much rather be with nurse Lisa. And so this, so my girlfriend who actually is a midwife said, no, 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 give him a little baby Tylenol. You know, it's going to be good. Okay. So so I'm starting to come into my body and thinking, I have all these judgments. I have all this lack of understanding in my life because I am a fragmented mess. I'm a nice person, but you know, right. That's the problem. So fast forward my son now, now this is a significant moment where I learned something, what I call antagonistic mentoring. And I learned this from Michael Mead. Have you heard of Michael Mead? Do you know who he is? Yes. Right. Okay. So I saw him live in Santa Monica. And so I can use this term and I'll share his little story, but here's how it happened for me. So now I've got this little boy who's grown up to, he's about seven. And my son went through Waldorf education, which is a Rudolf Steiner kind of school. And they're not allowed to watch TV. And the idea is no media so that we don't kind of mess up their own creativity. So great. But every time we would drive from Berkeley to visit my mom in LA, we needed my son to be a bit occupied (laughs) for (laughs) seven hours. So he would watch Mary Poppins every time we would drive. Well, on this particular day for this particular event, he said, if I watch Mary Poppins again, I don't know what I'm going to do. I'm going to go crazy. So we said, all right, all right. No Mary Poppins. We get get it. It's a little creepy in some ways. So... (laughs) 
So I go to the library in a rush and I'm like, oh my gosh, this is a holiday. So all the rated G movies are gone. So I pick one that's called Panda Express. It's Disney. It's rated G. So we get in the car. I plop it in. William's happy. John and I can talk. And we're like on our way to LA. About 10 minutes later, the primal cry again. My son is crying the same cry from when I brought him home. Wow. So we stop the car and I go in the back seat. I'm like, honey, what's wrong? Oh my gosh. He looks at me and he says, how could you? What kind of monster are you? And I said, what's happened? And he said, and he could barely say it. And he didn't know what he was saying. And he goes, gun, father, poacher. And apparently this rated G movie was about a man who loved pandas and somebody with a gun who was a poacher wanted the panda. Oh. And my son had never seen violence. And certainly did not understand, didn't even know what a poacher was, but he certainly understood that it was violent and hurtful and scary. And he looked at me and he said, you had me watch this. <laughs> and let me tell you about con right there. Night right the march. And what I wanted to do, to be honest, I wanted to turn away from him and just say, well, geez, kid, you know, you wanted a movie and I'm a good mother and I got you the movie. And I had all this shame. And all of this kind of overwhelm and all these, my own feelings. And I wanted to turn my shoulder away and brood. But what I did is I literally turned my shoulder back and I let it come. And he spewed that at me and it burned and I felt shame and I listened and I cried and he wouldn't look at me and he was as far away as he could get. He didn't want to touch me. He didn't want anything to do with me. And I let it burn like a skin was coming off, like what is the worst degree burn you could get? But I had like these skin is like peeling. And after I peeked in that, then I had a moment and I asked myself, what's the guidance here? Literally to a Michael Mead moment. And the guidance was, don't be like your mom who is loving, but she enabled things that hurt you. So instead, move one step beyond, evolve beyond your mom and be a very almost overprotective in your know, attached mom and get in between your child and those that would do your child harm. And my son taught me that. Our children are their greatest teachers, but that was a huge moment of leaning mm -hmm. into and learning and growing. I love it. You were willing to have a complete experience, experience. That's, of yeah. the shame. I mean, so often I think we're, like you're saying, you're trying to get away well, from it. It's also, that's kind of one of the, to me, the downsides of the current view on shame which is that there's something wrong with shame. And I'm like, don't blame shame. Shame is actually a wonderful experience of what you just described, something burning up inside of you. And if you actually just allow and don't, I don't believe in shaming, but I do believe shame is actually an incredibly vital resource, sort of like anger, like, you know, and it's important because that's when you feel this moment of, will I be in myself for who I am? And not turn away from it, not make it, you know, but be there. It's so How can I have my own arm around my shoulder as I'm feeling this? this. And witnessing somebody else and mm. with their upset, you know, like, yeah, and here I am. This is oh what my I gosh. I just love, I've got chills. Just I love that you've kind of called in that sh and brought shame in that way. Obviously, I was talking about it and you said, that's it. Because shame is, it's fire. It's heat. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And I think we spend a lot of times in our lives as human beings avoiding heat. And that's yes. false, <laughs> right? 
Yes. And if you think about it, do you want to be 99.9 at that last moment of your last breath, thinking that you had a lukewarm life? No, thanks. <laughs> I just want the heat and the cold and I want to jump in and I want to be messy and I want to be, you know, failure and triumphs. And I want to live with a capital L. And that certainly includes really messing up. And there's a different word I could use, effing up, you know, and, <laughs> right, right. you know, and I'm going to learn from that. And what it's going to do is it's going to bring me closer to love and it's going to get me closer to compassion when I realize that I really can be so separate from self. I mean, now, and then this work that I do as this work-life doula from recruiting now, holding this liminal space with people between their jobs, you know, as a recruiter, I have to say it's very Zen work. The people come to me, I always, the first thing I say to them, I say, hey, I'm not a headhunter. So like, you're really welcome here. I have liminal space for just dreaming, for crying, for anything. And a lot of people will cry. And I've had an experience through the 20 years where I've had a client that was murdered by him. Oh my gosh. I know. And that was during, remember the 2008, nine recession, how scary that was? Oh yes. Talk about heat and things. I can tell you living through that and being in connection with my community, there was more desperate fear around that than there was COVID. A more intense, COVID almost came in with, let's spread, you know, and like, we're going to figure this out. And then of course we had all that social conflict, which is devastating. But 2008, nine was, we were on the precipice and I don't think without everyone exactly knowing, but we were in the precipice of the deepest, biggest depression, global depression that really could have in an instant just devastated people's lives. And in fact, it kind of did. And we had a, you know, living in Northern California, there were so many people that were homeless, you know, in homeless camps. Very, very quickly, jobs were lost. It was just, remember those diagrams, you know, or actually unemployment, you know, and I saw so much devastation and my client was murdered by his employee who was, he was afraid of being laid off. And so came in with a gun and he shot his boss and he shot his, he had two bosses, the director and the manager. I've had other people I work with who leave work with heart attacks, who have left and lost whole organs because of all that autoimmune or all that conflict, aversion and devastation. Because, you know, working in healthcare, especially, there's a great deal of stress and a great deal of hierarchy. There are crying rooms for nurses because they don't know if they can speak up if there's a particular doctor that actually has a brilliance about that doctor, but he is a bully. And so the heat and the fear that in some people feel they can't find their way through, how do I come into being thrust into the desert? Where are the resources? And, you know, we look at all the classic tales. We look at Muhammad and Jesus and all of these incredible stories that all 40 days in the desert, you know, that is the idea of heat and lack of resources where you feel like you're going to die. Yeah. Yeah. I was thinking about even the connection to abandoning ourselves and thinking, oh my gosh, I need this job so much because it's going to put a roof over my head, food. But the, how easy it is to abandon ourselves because we think that's the only way, like when we're coaching somebody and they're like, well, I can't say this, I can't speak up. And so they're willing to get sick. They're willing to just leave their job. Yeah. Quit. Some are willing, they'd rather be dead than actually yeah. risk losing their job. And that's always mind boggling to me. Like, wow, you know, right. that's so sad that also it's not an easy thing when you have the compliance background or any sort of trauma that says no, because that the abandonment I think we feel now is actually that childhood abandonment yeah. that we were so overwhelmed with. We had no idea how to handle that level of feeling. So we thought, okay, what do we do? I'll be a good girl. I won't say things. Mm -hmm. 
But so that's cycling as an adult, but it's really that childhood abandonment that we never really dealt with, in my opinion. I agree with you completely. You know, a book that I'm trying to get through, and I probably need to listen to it while I walk my dog, because who has time, right? Do you have like 20 books, (laughs) like 15? So the book by Gabor Mate. Oh, you know, Myth of Normal. Myth of Night. Oh my gosh, this big, you know, I love it. Several inches, you know, big. I love the way he puts it. And it's right along what you were saying just now, because he says, we're all born into trauma because, you know, the minute that you come out of your mom's womb, you're like, hey, you know, where's the food and the coddling? You know, it was all there. Right there. I told you I wanted apple juice. You gave it to me. You know, I gave you the craving. And, you know, as a mom with my one son, which he, he got all of my attention, I could see right away how it was distressing. You know, it was really was distressing coming out to the world. And there's this moment where they're learning about, will I be abandoned? Even physically, I had this huge head, you know, it's like Gabor Monte kind of talks about too. It's like, we are bred with compassion. We got to take care of these beings. This baby with this huge head will not live if we are not there. And so compassion, you know, is so important. But so they start to experience little micro abandonments, just, you know, it's a slightest thing. Like I didn't get or eat what I wanted, or I wasn't touched just when I needed to be touched or something. And so the coping mechanisms begin. Depending on if you are a man or a woman, your coping mechanisms and the way that you're shaped to come and cope also within our modern society is different. So for boys, for men generally in our society, and I think this is our our big problem that really just hurts everyone, is that they're told, do not feel here. You have no access to vulnerability. You have no access to feeling and to sensitivity. And if you do, then you are being kicked out of the boys club. Bye-bye. So that's what starts with them. And so that coping starts. And, you know, if you're a sensitive male, ooh, you know, then that's really, really hard how to show up in that. And then for us girls, you know, or women, you know, gendered, you know, seen that way or whatever, like, okay, you're allowed to actually have access to your heart. But by the way, you're not going to get too far because you are so emotional. And so, (laughs) you know, for feeling, but you are to feel. And by the way, when you cry, it really bugs me. So don't (laughs) don't cry crap. You cannot get angry. You have to, you know, frying's okay, not anger. Right. So this is just all for the good feelings, that kind of thing. And so the self-abandonment happens in our binary culture, really upfront with just that separation from heart. And so what are those coping mechanisms going to be? And, you know, my coping was to be compliant, was to be the good girl. I was the oldest of three kids. And I was always sat in the middle between my two siblings because they would fight. And I was always the one who's like, oh, you know, you guys don't you know, it's kind of me. And I see other siblings in my family coping in different ways. And I can see my friends coping and some of them with addiction, some of them with cults, some of them with violence. Victor Frankel, who is an extraordinary therapist and psychologist who we all know or have heard his story, you know, that he was kidnapped and taken into the Holocaust camps. His wife who was pregnant was killed. His parents died of typhoid. His brother was killed. He survived and he came out and he said, oh my gracious, I learned something about human beings. Yeah. And he's different than what Freud will tell you. And it was so fascinating because yes. Freud will say the main motivator of the human is pleasure. That's what Freud says, right? He's like sex principle and all this kind of stuff. And then Adler will say that it's power. Mm-hmm. And actually what Viktor Frankl is saying is it's meaning. The human being 
needs to have meaning in their day-to-day life because of our human potential, because of our capacity to even dream or think about existential universes, to think about dead people who we love still, to even comprehend a poem. Our potential is so great that if we are not touching meaning every day, we'll look elsewhere. We'll look to pleasure. We'll look to fame. We'll look to cults because maybe they give us meaning because we're in there. Or we'll go to violence because what else feels more alive than death? And so this lack of meaning relates to the self-abandonment, because if you are not really aware to your own inner voice, what your own feelings are, what you love, what you don't love, what is actually your own special spark that you're born with that you're here to give, if you're pulled across or away from that because you have to show up for somebody else's agenda, then how can you even touch your own meaning? And so ultimately, you'll make those decisions to stay in a job that's not good for you. You'll make all these other decisions because you don't even know who you are, what you really care about and what's meaningful in your own life. It's just devastating. I think that's so true. I mean, Laurie, for our listeners who may be in that job search process, what is your coaching to them in supporting them kind of finding that peace and staying in this forward movement of creating and meaning? Mm, Yes. So when people come to me and they come to career ecology, Usually I'm finding people these days that have been laid off or in a job where they feel like they've been abandoned one way or another, they're entering into a liminal state. And the first thing that I want to do is give permission for this lostness state. And I often bring them into a metaphor about the monarch butterfly, which is really prolific here where I live in San Diego, because we're so close to actually their whole migration from Mexico, kind of up through California and all the way up the coast. And what I explain to them, and I find often, by the way, and I know this really relates to equus and, you know, the animals and all of this, is that nature is our number one, not only common ground, but it is 6.5 billion years of successful evolution. (laughs) It's doing something right. It's been doing that for a long time. Definitely. All of our social innovation is there. And let's forget, you know, obviously sustainability and everything else. But our social innovation, and I find every day I look to nature for spiritual messaging. I find that nature is void of the human ego, which has this kind of war with meaning or, you know, and all of this fear-based ego where it has to go ahead and dominate others. Nature doesn't. Nature lives out there in a constant state of life and death without any sort of kind of concept of that. It just lives it. So when I come and bring in nature and I say, look at the success of this, and I want to share the monarch butterfly, because this is where you are. I say, right now you've come to me and you said you're looking for a job. You basically want to fly. You know, I get it. I said, but before the monarch can fly, it actually needs to be imaginal in the chrysalis. But before it's imaginal, it had to shed its skin. And before it even shed its skin, it shed it four times. And it actually went through a process that's incredibly vulnerable, where a monarch's life cycle is that it gets still. So first of all, we take one step back. You know what? A monarch caterpillar is a rabid consumer, even more than we Americans. Okay. I mean, (laughs) I have to have a second job to buy enough of the milkweed plant for They will eat a whole milkweed in a day. So they're consuming, they're consuming, and then they get super still and vulnerable. A lizard will eat them in a second if they can spot this juicy caterpillar. But then they shed a skin, then they're still again. And they go it through four times. And once they hang upside down in a J shape and they shed that skin and they go into the imaginal self, that chrysalis, there's an enzyme that actually turns on the disintegration of the old body and the birth of the new. Now, in that chrysalis, it will stay in there a week if it's warm, 
But if it's cold, it'll stay in months. So it only comes out when its external environment actually meets its need to come out. It's a dance together. So the first thing I do is I talk with people. I say, this is your rite of passage. This is not just getting a job. This is the modern day hero's journey. And it's going to hurt. It's going to confuse you. You're going to be vulnerable. But we take you through this process. And you know what? You are going to fly. And you are going to ride that wind. And we're going to make sure you do. Rather than just always eating the leaves. You know, <laughs> not a milkweed. Do it. I know. So it's a little poetic. But I have to start there. Yeah, I sure. drop them down, you know, I agree. Not. I appreciate that you're slowing them down, like not just solving this problem, because that's like a top layer versus, yeah. hey, this is an opportunity for you to basically recreate who you are, connect more to who you are. So what comes out, what you do create in your world, the job will fit. I do have to say, though, hopefully you don't tell them just how long a monarch butterfly lives. It's life cycle. It's not. So (laughs) I have this slight fear. Not that that's what counts. It's not how long you live. It's how well you live. And a monarch butterfly, you know. (laughs) I know. They don't mean in the height of summer. On one given day, I had 16 births on one day. Oh, Oh, wow. You know, this whole season, I birthed 51 because I've got a nursery. Oh, Um, oh, And so I just have one that's flitting around now. But it is, you know, I've got through Career Ecology, I have something called Way of the Monarch. And it's this interactive, expressive rite of passage where I take people through all through nature and through animals and all the metaphors and all of their wisdom. But really teaching that whole journey of the hero that goes into the dark woods, you know, it really is that the idea of being laid off or in between jobs is like being thrust into the woods and you realize that you want to get back to your car. And (laughs) you look over your shoulder and you're like, "Uh uh-oh, I stopped marking my way. I no longer recognize that tree or that cluster of rocks. But you still, what do you do? You frantically go backwards. You keep trying to find the old path. You get more and more lost, more and more frantic. And then you either sit in a stump and you decide, I'm just going to go ahead and just sit here and just lose it. And just nothing's going to happen. I'm going to kind of die out, you know, in this. Or I'm going to turn on a new navigational system. And that's when you stand up and you go, all right, what's around me? And you look forward and you go, what do I hear? What do I smell? What are the stars doing? Where's the sun in the sky? And that's when actually beautiful change starts. And that's why exile is so important. When you truly, the external path, when you're laid off, you can't go back into that job. You know, (laughs) it's an exile and it's a gift. It's a moment of significant conflict for each individual. But it is an absolute opening and it is a guidance to something better. So I say this to people and they're like, yeah, now what? You know, like, okay, that's all great. I get it. But what's the practical effect? And that's why you've seen some of the things and I mentioned in my bio and what I do is mindful interviewing, feng shui resume. This one part of it also is called the dynamic search path. So I have to ask you both. Have you yet? And if you haven't, promise me you will. But have you seen the movie The Biggest Little Farm yet? No. No. Every reader or listener, please do watch this movie if you'd like. It is about a couple. It's a true story. And they live in Southern California. They have an actual biodynamic farm here in Moorpark. And the nutshell of their story is that they decided to start a farm and they didn't want to monocrop it. They didn't want to just grow almonds on dead soil and use up the bees until they did their job and died trying. They said, let's make a biodynamic farm. It takes seven years to rewild acres of land. 
And it's seven years to invite in all of the biodynamic life and everything so that you can live with harmony, but a certain amount of disharmony. And that's sort of the point. How do we as humans come and learn to keep our balance amid surprises? We have to learn to collaborate with a mystery. So as this coach, as this doula, I come in and I say, you think you want this job? Great. We're going to look at this, but you know what? We can have a threefold path because you got to play with chance. Because you know what? That one that you want, the universe might go, nope. So, and that second one might be, no, no, it (laughs) might be the third, the one you didn't think you really wanted, but it's the one you're going to get. And guess what? It is for your highest good. And you'll recognize it one year, seven years out, but you will get it. And so they have to set up this. And it's the idea of nature, diversity and cooperation is behind the proliferation of life. You remind me a good friend of ours, and we've had her on our podcast, Robin Kelsey. She talks about resiliency and the whole idea of this biodiversity fits right into that and applying it. I think she may have been the one who mentioned the film, although I don't think we've watched it. But I do. (laughs) We will. We will. Now it's come up twice, you know. So we have a garden. That was a start for us. Our little garden. Gloria, I think you have such great wisdom, especially for people in that transition. How can people get a hold of you, learn more about you? Yes, thank you. Oh, gosh. You know, I really just showing up on career ecology with also on Mondays, or is it Tuesdays? Tuesdays, I'm also, I open up for Ask Lori, which is basically come in and go, I need a job and I don't know if I want to work with you or anyone. I just want to cry. But basically, I'm always there on Tuesdays. So I want that open, open door. And then you can always come in. I have a special page that I'm setting up based on this beautiful conversation, which I just feel is so enlivened. I cannot wait to stay and continue to be in touch with you and your community. So I'm going to have a page where people can come in for just special reflections from today as well as offers and things. And it's going to be at Career Ecology. Those two real words spelled that way. So Career Ecology, no dots, no dashes, careerecology.com slash B-O-C. So beauty of conflict, B-O-C. So you don't have to type it all out. Uh, (laughs) So come on over and then just drop in any time and anything you want to talk about, even gluten-free brownie recipes. I don't care. You know, (laughs) it is, it is, you know, and it's a, well, you have been delightful. I know we could talk more. You're a great storyteller too. So I really appreciate it. Thank you so much. So much great gratitude that you're holding the space and please keep going and going. And I keep listening and listening. Walking my black who's waiting to get in the door right now. (laughs) (laughs) I hope you enjoyed this episode. Susan here. As a coach, a lot of my time is spent helping clients speak up in a direct and honest way in their relationships at home and at work. Chris Marie and I decided to create a speak up kit to help you do that for yourself. It's the best of our best work that we've gathered to help you. To learn more, go to thriveinc.com forward slash speak up. That's www.thriveinc.com forward slash S-P-E-A-K-U-P.